brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Baseball America Prospects podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer alongside J.J. Cooper. Hello. We're here to talk about the Red Sox system today. And uh, before uh, we dive in, I want to let you know the Baseball America Prospect Handbook is available to be purchased. BaseballAmerica.com store due to ship out later this month. Should have it in your hands early February. A lot of good stuff in there. 30 prospects for every team. 900 reports in total. And and I'll also remind you, BaseballAmerica.com slash store. It's a good time to subscribe because, man, I mean, you can stay really busy right now. We're getting ready to hunker down. We're going to have another winter storm coming through here tomorrow and on Wednesday. And, and the thing about it is, is that there is so much content up right now you can be diving into. We have... Uh, we are wrapping up this week. We will have all 30 top 10s up for Baseball America subscribers. We will have the top 100 prospects coming very, very, very soon. We also have the top 200 draft prospects up. We have to-do lists for everyone projected to be in the first round of the uh, draft in June. And we got the college top 25 coming. We've got capsules on all the top 25 teams. We've got conference previews on every Division One baseball conference. We've got small college preview. We could go on and on and on. There's a lot. Now we're about to go on and on and on uh, about the Red Sox system. Yes. As much as possible, I should say. This is a system that, look, they've graduated a tremendous amount of talent to the major leagues the last few years. They've also had good prospects and used them to trade for veterans. So on the one hand, you look at the Red Sox system as it is right now. And let's this just be frank, I was, I was shocked. This is one of, for my money, the five worst farm systems in baseball. This is the thinnest that the Red Sox farm system has been in quite a while. Now, that's a very high bar that we are talking about because we are talking about a, an organization that just in recent years, I mean, at this a year ago, they, they had the number one prospect in baseball, Andrew Benintendi. Not long before that, before they traded him away, they had Yoan Mankata as well. Rafael Devers, who's now in the big leagues. Right. And then you go back before that, Xander Bogarts. Bookie Betts, Jackie Bradley. So in one sense, it's okay that it's thin because, look, the point of the farm system is to graduate it onto the major league levels, and the Red Sox have done that. Backfilling it on the back end has been a little bit more of a struggle, as you see uh, if we can you really dive into it. And, for example, their number one overall prospect, Jason Groom, is a left-hander who rang up a 6.70 ERA in the Sally League last year. Now, obviously, there's some draft pedigree there, but when that's your number one prospect and there's really only one other guy you really even consider to be a challenger for that spot, there's not a lot at the top. There's certainly not a lot in the middle. And once you get down to the depth, it's amazing how thin it is. Well, and again, like the thing I'll say with Groom is, is, you know, if I'm talking about number ones, yes, it was not a great year last year. He had some injury issues. He had some inconsistency. That being said, he is... Absolutely a high upside, high risk guy. And I mean, draft a first round, you know, near top of the first round pitcher, that's often what you get. But he is a guy, if it all clicks, who could be one of the best pitching prospects in baseball. So 
I like for them because they are an organization. The reality of it is, is that they they have the financial resources to take big swings. He's a guy who fits that. Michael Chavis, who's number two for them, you know, is a guy who literally takes big swings. Take, you know, but he's gotten better about that, I would say. <laughs> and you know, there's some questions: where is he going to end up defensively, long term, and all that? But had a really good year, really good year in 2017, especially that first half in Salem. So. It's yes, it's absolutely thin. And if you are a prospect on this Red Sox top 30, you also go into the season knowing, hey, I, I may not end up uh, coming up in Fenway because they have shown under their current front office, anyone and everyone in this system is available in the right move for the right guy. And I don't think considering where the Red Sox are, I don't think that that's necessarily, I mean, I, I, we should, you know, I, I, we, yes, we talk about prospects all the time. The Red Sox use their prospects to make their current big league team better. And their logic is, I would say at some point at this point, is we will continue spending money to bring new prospects in, many of which may end up doing the same in the future. And it's, the thing with that is, is that they've made trades They've given up significant talent in trades, but it's hard for me to find a whole lot of those trades where you look at it with a little bit of time removed and say, man, they really wish they could do that over again. The, the only one is Travis Shaw. And, that's, and that is a killer one, but it was about they traded big leaguer, they got back Tyler Thornburg, who was hurt. Right, that's, that's not as much, that's not trading Anderson Espinosa for Drew Pomerantz. That's a Which different... They are. They should be happy about, rightly happy about. You, you're that's right, not you trading Yohan Mankata, you know, in a deal to bring back Chris Sale, which, right. again, yes, Yohan Mankata was as good a prospect as it was in baseball. If the Red Sox had to do that over again right now, they would say, yes, please. Make that trade. And that's where, again, they've had talent, they've used that talent to acquire more talent, uh, proven. You mentioned Chris Sale, Drew Pomerantz, you know Craig Kimbrell. Hey, Manny Margot had a really nice rookie year for the Padres. They do that trade again players. a thousand times, and they should. So you look at all these moves they've made. For the most part, they have been good moves. You're right, though. I, I even with all that said, look, they're the defending American League East champions. The Red Sox are not in bad shape in any way, shape, or form. At the same time, there are some holes on their major league roster. Power being one of them. They need a lot of these young guys to bounce back. And I think it's one of those things where you would certainly like to be able to say, hey, we have some guys, you know, this year, next year, we can reasonably but, look at and say, we can bring, you know, this group of three or four up or I'll, have three I'll, or four I'll, guys to make another big trade, but, which so they don't I, have right now. But I'll make the counterpoint to that is, is they don't, when you look at this lineup, okay, what positions, what positions? First base, Mitch, huh? Morland, Mitch Moreland. That, that's it, though, basically. I mean, that is I mean, essentially Han Han Hanley's aging at DH. Catcher has still been a little, you know, Christian Vasquez did some good things in part-time last year. So, I mean, there are, you know, you need impact bats. But, catcher, but again, first base, second DH. base, they have a guy who's under, uh, they have a face of the franchise guy who's under contract for years to come. Shortstop, they're good. He needs to be better than he was last year in some ways. But at the same time, you know, Xander Bogarts, you're, you're good. Devers, you're good. Benintendi, Devers, you're good. good at third. Your outfield is Benintendi, Bradley, and Betts. That's, you're not looking to replace any of those guys. So the point being, they don't really have a whole lot of positions where you'd say, 
here's where we're looking to have a guy step in. Well, here's where I think they need it is the rotation. Where you have right now, look, Rick Porcello, we knew he wasn't as good as Sayung Rick Porcello. Mm-hmm. Last year, 4.65 ERA, below average ERA plus. Is it going to cut it? Eduardo Rodriguez, no. They signed Doug Fister off the scrap heap. And he did okay, all things considered. But I think right now you look at this team and say, there is some back-end starter depth you would like to have. And if they had an arm or two that they could bring up reasonably and say, we can plug this guy in to that fourth or fifth starter and let him grow into something more, that would be hugely beneficial, and they don't have that right now. But I will also say the thing that's been difficult for the Red Sox for a decade is developing that guy to do that. And the other problem they've had is that because they are a team that is perennially in contention, they don't have as much of the opportunity this is something the Yankees did a really good job of last year with Jordan Montgomery, but both these teams have had trouble breaking in starters because if you are in contention, they have less ability to say, yes, it may be a rough five to ten starts as he acclimates. That's where I think both these teams have generally had a desire to go with the veteran who's mediocre because unless the guy's really a special talent, they look at it and say, I'm – I'm more confident that this 28-year-old or this 30-year-old is going to give me 20 mediocre starts than they are the the more higher upside, the higher risk rookie. And that's something that's worked in, I think. Because, again, but that is a problem that the Red Sox have had for a long, John Lester, long, Clay Buckholz. I mean, John Lester, Clay Buckholz are the last two successful homegrown develop starting develop starting pitcher development stories. Pretty there. much, yeah. It's been a decade or so. Yeah, I mean, it is something where, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here looking at a, a cover we have here in the uh, podcast uh, room, you know, and it has future Red Sox ace Clay Buckholz. Yeah, that's from '08. So you know, that's that's a decade ago, and that is. The reality of it is, is that that's something that they have had consistent problem doing. And but what they've done is, is that okay, we're a big market team with prospects and money, and so we'll go out and acquire Chris Sale. We'll go out and acquire Rick Pasella. We'll go out and acquire David Price. They do this time and time again, and in the in the world we live in right now in baseball, I don't see a real reason they won't be able to continue doing that. There's no question. So I think it's it's something to keep in mind. You know, a lot of times we focus so much on the prospects and the farm system. And, and look, it's important to have. But the Red Sox are in a really good place at the major league level. And I don't see that changing just because they have a poor farm system or two. Now, they're going to have to draft well. They've always had a really good international signing group. Uh, Manny Nanita, Eddie Romero, they've been fantastic. And, they and need that's, more guys I, to come That's up. one of the things that we do have to talk about here that is, that's just rough because it's truly and utterly a tragedy, which is, is that they had one of the best young catching prospects in the game. And it's, I mean, with this, it goes far beyond the baseball component. But it is... Obviously, always horrifically sad. Daniel Flores, you're talking about a guy who was one of the best prospects in last year's July 2 class. By all accounts, everyone loved being around him. And, I mean, just such a shocking tragedy that we're talking about he's... 17 years old. 17 years old. He's in Instructs. And then you turn around and he's dead from complications from cancer. Cancer is awful, as you know. As everyone probably listening to this knows, you probably have had someone that you know affected by it. 
But that is, again, I hate to even talk about it from the baseball component because it is a human tragedy much more than it is that. But it also is, the reality of it is, is Daniel Flores was going to rank very high on this top 30. He was probably a year away from being at least at most a year away from being potentially their best position prospect. And again, this is something you don't plan for, you don't see coming, and just, I mean, an utter tragedy. And one that has, I mean, again, teammates having to deal, you know, like everyone is still trying to recover from that from the standpoint of, this just completely and utterly came out of the blue. You have a, a person, not even in the prime of life, he was on his way towards the prime of life. And to be cut down like that is just, just awful. Yeah, no, that's uh, something that's that's never easy to, to deal with and never easy to get over. You just, you know, hope hope the family and, and everything can, can recover as, as best as you can because I don't think you ever really recover from the loss of a child, um, no. especially so suddenly. And it's just something that, and there's no good segue from that. But I do think, like when you're looking at this top ten, when you're looking at, you know, the the thing about this top ten, what the what the Red Sox did in the draft, is we talked about that they are, you know, Jay Groom is a high upside guy. Well, I I feel like in this most recent draft, you know, you add a Tanner Hout who. I think is a probably a pretty quick, potentially a quick moving guy. Now, it, there's been a lot of debate over the years whether Tanner Houck's going to end up in the ro- in the rotation or the bullpen, but I, I do think he's got a pretty clear path to the big leagues and potentially, I think probably in the pen, but potentially pretty quick. You, you throw in an Alex Scherf, you know, who's a little lower down on this top ten, but again is a is a big arm who. There is a chance for him to be an impact guy. There's a lot of risk involved there. Cole Brandon's another. Cole no, Brandon is an athletic away. outfielder. He's far away, um, but at the same time, if it all clicks, the, the Red Sox should be doing this. They are not a team that is really going out and uh, acquiring guys who they think have a chance to to make it to the big leagues. You know, their first, second round picks are not guys who. Yeah, that guy could make it to the big leagues for a couple of weeks. They're looking for guys who potentially, they're not going to hit on all these, but either will garner significant value in trades or can make an impact at the big league level. There's a lot more risk involved in that. But that's, I mean, again, they do have guys like Marco Hernandez who fits much more what we're talking about. The, this guy's going to play in the big leagues. I don't know, you know, how much impact he'll have. Sue Lin. Yes, they have brought Brian Johnson, your perfect sixth or seventh starter. Right. Don't want him to be a five, probably even, but you know, but they have that. But they are, you know, we talk about big swings. Bobby Dalbeck takes big swings, and he may it may never work out for him. That being said, he has exceptional power. So if it does click for him, he's a guy who you're finding a spot for in you know in the lineup. Or he's a guy who garners significant trade. They do that much more right now than they do, you know. And again, they we talked about this. We just we did another podcast talking about the recent trades that the Pirates did and the, what the Astros acquired, what the Giants acquired. The other thing with this is is it's not a very good farm system, but the pieces are still here. 
if you're willing to trade and acquire salary in those deals, and the Red Sox generally have been willing to acquire salary. And that's part of the financial might of, of being the Boston Red Sox. We talk about you know the top of the system is what makes a ton of difference, where even if you don't have a particularly deep system, if you have three or four guys at the top who hit and hit big, you can look back at your system as a whole and mm-hmm. say, I was successful. I, going back to that top, you know, we, we touched on Jay Groom a little bit. How much confidence do you have? You know, we talk about this big ceiling, but how much confidence do you have that he actually gets it? I think I'm very interested to see what happens in 2018 because we have seen, you know, the two pitchers. I mean, look, if we had this to do over not that long, we are not that far removed from the 2016 draft, obviously. But that being said, clearly, without a question in the world, if you said right now, okay, you're drafting a high school pitcher out of the 2016 draft, you're taking Forrest Whitley. You're taking them. You're not thinking it. You're not thinking it over. It's there's to me, if you could pump truth serum into every scouting director who drafted, every GM who drafted a high school pitcher above them, they'd admit at this point, yes, we would want to have Forrest Whitley. But at the time of the draft, Riley Pint, Jay Groom were considered probably the best two high school pitchers in that draft class. Which by the way just goes back to High school pitchers are such wild cards. You should never, ever, ever, ever be like, yes, we got this high school pitcher. Wait a year. Because you, as much as you might think you know, you don't. But, you're, but hey, the Astros drafted Forrest Whitley. Right, and but, you know, but, but just to put but perspective, being, Whitley was the seventh high school pitcher right. drafted. Ian Anderson, Riley Pint, Braxton Garrett, Matt Manning, Jason Groom. So sixth. I mean, this. But so my point being is that Pint Groom were considered the two best talents of that group, potentially, and both of them had very rough first full seasons. Now, here's, but this is, to me, this is why, again, you can say any year is a vital year, but this is why this is a vital year for both of them, but we're talking about Groom right now. What's vital is, is, okay, that was your first full season. That was your acclimation year in many ways. That was the year that gave you a to-do list. Here's what I have to do. Because Jay Groom at his best last year was still pretty good. But you saw that what he was unable to do, the consistency wasn't there. And some of that was injury-related. Some of it injury-related. Some of it was from start to start. Some of it was from inning to inning. He's not there yet as far as keeping the delivery in control at all times. But he is a lefty with front-of-the-rotation stuff still. He showed that last year. He's got to do it more consistently. He's got to command it better. Everything has to just, he just has to refine. That, to me, is less concerning. Rewind the clock when we talk about the volatility of high school pitchers. Compare that to a Tyler Kolek, who was considered a top pitching prospect from the prep class a couple years before, and he went out in his first full year. And the real problem was, as you said, I don't see the stuff. You know, what was 100 was too often 90 to 92. I'm much more concerned, again, if you want to put another analogy for that, Kyle Muller, who was a top pitcher, you know, top, uh, a, a top arm in that, prep arm in that class, went a little later but got a lot of money. He went out this past year and the stuff wasn't as good. If the stuff's not as good, I'm more concerned because then you may not still, ha- you may not have the same building blocks 
as you did, as you thought you did. In Groom's case, the stuff was still pretty good. He's got to stay healthy. He's got to improve, refine everything. Yes, I mean, absolutely, it's volatile, and there is a chance. But to put it in a Red Sox analogy, I like where he is one year in better than I did where Trey Ball was. Because, again, with Trey Ball, when you ask scouts about Trey Ball one year, one full season in, and they say, I don't know what of this was a top 10 pick because the stuff's only average at best. No one was saying that about Jay Groom. When you saw Jay Groom, your response was, yeah, I saw him bad, but I also heard someone else saw him and saw, you know, 95 plus and it was lively and, you know, and it was really good. Right. The hope you can, the, the thing you can take away that's hopeful is the 12 strikeouts per nine. He did Absolutely. that. He did that at Greenville. It's a good he thing. He misses bats. You just also saw five walks per nine over, you know, home run per nine, ERA six, seven. As much as the stuff was, was great at times, gave up a hit in inning or a tad under it. So I do think, and look, it's not like he was all over the place. You know, it was three hit by you know three hit by pitches, one wild pitch. The five walks are way way too high. You compare that to say, you know, you would talk about his counterpart Riley Pint, who had a higher walk rate, then also threw uh, eight hit by hit eight, hit eight batters through twenty six wild pitches. So right. now I'll say this but, again, but, but Pint also had ERA almost a run and a half lower, and he was and, pitching in Asheville. Right. So I I think there's. There's, there's silver linings. There's silver linings on Jay Groom, but I also think it's the, the other it's, thing I'll say. It's for tough Pine, to get overly like overly optimistic. You just say, okay, let's let's. It's a holding pattern for me. Let's see. The other thing, and this is, I do think a component that often gets overlooked is, is you do also have to know from pitcher to pitcher, what is it, what are they doing from an instruction standpoint? With Pint last year, there were times where they were basically de-emphasizing. His best, break, his best secondary pitch because they wanted him to develop his other secondaries. Again, best example of this, like I talked to a scout who saw Mitch Keller last year earlier in the year, and it's like, I never, I love his curveball. Never saw the curveball. They, they wanted him working on fastball command and his changeup, so he wasn't throwing it. Well, that's not something that a team ever does to a big leaguer. Right. But it does mean that, again, if you're talking about a pitcher's ERA in high A when he's doing that, well, it may look a little worse. There are components behind it. You know, with all these guys, the reality of it is is that it, that's where you have to add some to the statistics because you have to know, well, what are they doing? If you're, Riley, if you're a Rockies fan, one of the things you hope for is, is that there were times where Riley Pint was told not to use his best stuff because they were working on things. Okay, you hope that that means a year or two later he's going to be better because of it. But it is kind of really an asterisk on, well, some of these starts, maybe it could have been better, but they were not aiming towards him having dominance in 2017. So here's the real question. If you're the Red Sox, do you send Jay Groom out to high A or do you send him back to uh, the South Atlantic League? I think, and again, I know we're comparing apples to oranges because we're comparing hitters to pitchers. Michael Chavis who's number two on this list, was part of that incredible, and I mean incredible Greenville lineup where they had at the, they had him, Benatendi, Devers, and Mikata all together. The next year, all those guys went on up, and Michael Chavis went back. I do think with Groom, I think from his standpoint, 
you need to say, you know what? No, you have, we have not exhausted what you can learn from Greenville, from the Sally League. Especially because it was only 44 and a third innings there. It's not right. like he had a full so component of 100 So you send them back there and you say, look, you do what we think you're capable of doing. You'll be in high A by halfway through the season. But you advance by earning it. And as of right now, I would argue he's not earned it. You know, again, now, could he go out in spring training and earn it? Absolutely. If he's doing everything, if you say, you know what, the consistency is a significant step ahead, then maybe it is. There also are other components where there are times where you say, you know what, we feel like we want you working with this pitching coach. That kind of thing happens. But I think right now I say, no, he goes back to low A. You hit on the next guy, Michael Chavis, number two on this list, and, and I think some would argue that's where the uh, the top prospects in this system ends is after number two, Michael Chavis. Again, 2015 in Greenville, as you mentioned, 223 with a 277 on base, got sent back the next year. And even his repeat year, it was better, still wasn't very good, 244 with a 321 on base and a 391 slug. His slug actually went down. Two years at low A, nothing's working, bumped him up to high A this year, mashed. Absolutely mashed. Finished the year in double A. Even though the slash numbers went down a little bit, still slugged. By the time the year was over, 282, 347, 563, 31 homers, 94 ribs, 35 doubles on top of it. Strikeouts were reasonable too. 113 and 126 games for a power hitter. That's not bad at all. He was his age 21 season. He's still young. You know, I think there was an argument. I'm not saying I understand the reasons why you don't do it, but there is an argument for Michael Chavis as the number one prospect in oh, the system. Is. What for you ultimately is it? You know, again, Alex Spire of the Boston Globe is who comprises the system. We have to give him credit. Um, but I think overall it was fairly reflective of the industry that you know Groom is probably the number one guy in the system still, and Chavis is number two behind him. What for you is it that that keeps Chavis just a, a half step back of Groom, if you will, even though he's further along and, and has been productive at higher levels? Again, I think it it does come down to I mean this is upside versus you know versus risk. Also, a positional rarity front, right. lefty, front, left you know. front line left hander versus power hitting corner guy. I, again, we, we touched on, I don't know where Michael Chavis is going to end up playing defensively long-term. Now, part of that is is that he's a Red Sox right now, you know, and I, I don't see any way that he's moving Devers off of third base. Maybe he can play second, but I think that's that's very speculative. To me, it's, it's hey, you maybe think he's, he Mitch, he's, Mitch, left. he's Mitch Moreland's you know, replacement at and first base. And maybe he's first base. That's where, it, that's where it ends up. Now, again, both if he's a first baseman, I think there's a decent risk of that. If he's a first baseman, then the bar is a whole lot higher, you know, as far as what he has to do offensively to be Jay Groom. What Jay Groom has to do to be a middle rotation starter, you know, is it's a big leap from where he is right now. Michael Chavis, what he has to do offensively to be a everyday first baseman is a big leap from where he is right now. I, and again, you hit on it. As good as last year was, and last year was great, you do hope and believe, I have some belief, that that is a step forward. But at the same time, this is not a guy who's mashed at every level and just basically had to be, you know, like, raced through the system. It's someone who's had some ups, had some downs. Last year was a great year. 
but you know you don't throw out what he did in 16 or 15 as well and so you put all that together and that's where I'm okay with him being number two you know, I, I think for me, I do take a lot of solace in the fact that, you know, not only did he just mash at Salem, when he went up to double A, he continued mashing. Now, look, and by the, way, the, you, aver- the average went down, the on-base went down. Salem's a brutal place to hit homers, by the way. That's just one thing we need to throw in there, too. So I think when you see that, that jump, it's encouraging to me. And again, even if he ends up at first base, you know, we talk about, you know, the average first baseman in the major leagues these days you know, last year, the average first baseman was 261, 343, 472. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when your average first baseman is posting, you know, 820 OPSs, it is fairly lofty. I, right. I, that's, do I think mean, that's, that is, that's, a, that's a relatively high bar to clear. This is, you know, it's funny, like, the difference between that right now and left field. <laughs> yes. Significant difference. So, but I do think there's, there's definitely reason to be optimistic about Chavis and, I think there's a chance you see him uh, get a call up at the end of at the end of this year. Especially, we know uh, Dave Dombrowski and company don't really put much stock into Triple A. So if he goes out and really rakes at Double A uh, to start the first half of the year, maybe he spends a, a couple a week or two in Pawtucket. Especially if first base becomes a hole again, and you know resigning Mitch Moreland doesn't turn out to work out that well, and then they're moving guys around, or Hanley continues to decline as a but, DH. Well, that's the thing that they. They're, that's they're, what, they're, there's you, pass for there's there's pass for Michael Chavis. Right, but when you resign Mitch Moreland, part of the reason to me that you're resigning Mitch Moreland is, is that you feel comfortable you're getting something. Now you know. He wasn't terrible last year, but but you, also you know he's not going to be great. Right. There's room for look. 20, 22, he's three straight 20 home run seasons. But despite that, you know, OPSs have gone, you know, went 812, then 720 last year back up to 769, which we just talked about in the context of first baseman. You know, it's about 40, 40 to 50 points below league average first baseman. It's a two year deal. So again, it's not like, oh, they signed Mitch Moreland for five, six years and Michael Chavis is blocked. No. But I, I think it does give Chavis time to develop. And to me, you know, again, we talk about, oh, where's the guy going to play? Where's the guy going to play? Sometimes in a vacuum of what he's capable of, a lot of times it comes down to what is at the major league level, who's there first. Oh, absolutely. So to me, that's why, yes, Michael Chavis should continue playing third base with the minors, but Red Sox fans should consider him their future first baseman. You know, and what's interesting with that, like, okay, I mean, there's an alternate universe out there where Mookie Betts stayed at second base and is, you know, is – Battling Jose Altuve to be the best second baseman in uh, in baseball, but that's a, you know that's a, a a universe where Dustin Pedroia was not already there, you know because again like and instead the uber athletic Betis Betts becomes you know Betts becomes a uh, a stud outfielder defensively. So so we've only talked about the top two guys in the system, and that's because you know they're all the, those guys. You know we talked about Tanner Howe, well, Cole Brennan. I, Sam Travis. I, we talked about for a base, first, first base. base. So that was Sam correct. Travis is interesting because made his major league debut this year. And again, when we talk about the bar, the question with him is: is it's hard to see him clearing that bar because you. The tough thing about first base, we talked about it, and you're making a good point, which is is Michael Chavis is putting together the resume where at some point you very well could see, if he keeps this up, them saying, okay, let's give him the job. Let's give him the opportunity for the job. Sam Travis right now has not cleared that bar because as opposed to a shortstop, a center fielder, a position like that where 
you provide enough defensive value, you can get a shot as a fill-in. Tougher to do that at first base because you can see if you you could always go out there and get another bat. Like those bats are widely available, available, widely available, widely available, and so because of that, Sam Travis to me is going to really have to take a step forward to really ever get that shot. You mentioned, you know, the average Josh first baseman. works in that, too. Right, the average first base slash line. You know, I gave you the slash line. Uh, 26 home runs is the average first baseman. And Sam Travis, while we see home runs go up in the major leagues now, um, he's also a guy whose career high was nine home runs in 2015, hit six in Pawtucket last year. Now, given 82 games, so, you know, put that out to a full season, maybe he's pushing 10. But, again, it's hard to see the, the power translating to be enough. And, again, if there were other power sources on the team where you said, okay, but we're getting excess power out of our center fielder or our shortstop or our catcher so we can live with a little less power at first base, maybe you could see it working. But power has been a Red Sox shortcoming, at least it was last year. So it's hard to see it working. But, again, you know, he's, for the most part, big league ready. We saw him, you know, play 33 games there last year. You know, did some okay thing. You know, you hit 263 with a 325 on base in your first taste of the big leagues. It's not horrendous. It's fine. We'll see We'll see what happens with him. Uh, overall, though, I, I think I look at this system, and to be honest, once you get past number 12, you're really taking some, you're really taking some, well, if this and that and that, then maybe this. There's really, you know, sometimes some of these other systems, not even the deepest systems, but just solid ones. You go down to number 18 and say, hey, you know, that guy's got some stuff. Maybe I can see him as a reliever. The Red Sox, again, I think you're stretching, stretching past, you know, that number 12 range to really, really see anyone that you can say there's only one if about. There's four. I, I, I know, you know, you if you're listening to this, you don't have the 30 in front of you. Obviously, we do because it's been sent to the printer. But what we're talking about is this, guys. We talked about Bobby Dahlbeck, who's in this range. Third there's, baseman. There's about did, four ifs there. I right, like there, him, but there's about four ifs. Yes. I mean, right now, if you ask me if is I see Bobby Dahlbeck as a big leaguer, I see it on the mound, probably. You know, I know he wants to be a hitter, but at the same time, he has legit stuff on the mound. He showed that in college, and, you know, I think it wouldn't be stunning if he ended up there. Uh, you know, a guy like uh, you, you mentioned Brian Johnson. Brett Netzer, uh, Brett Netzer could really hit. You know, that's kind of but I mean, Ch- Chad De La Guerra is your classic, you know, up-down utility infielder. Ron- Ronnie Elradis really knows how to pitch, but he does it with pretty, pretty vanilla stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of guys like that on this. This is a, look, this is a thin system right now. There are reasons for that. They are, they are okay with being a thin system. That is the Dave Dombrowski approach. And, you know, again, there are different ways to do this. I, it's hard to criticize it too much because, again, they are thinner because they went out and they traded for guys, and those guys have made impacts for them. And so they don't, they don't win the American League East without those guys. And to be honest, without Chris Sale, without Craig Kimbrell, without Drew Pomerantz, they're probably not contending for the American League East next year again, even with the Yankees on the rise. And the Red Sox are in that position. So, look, the trades were worth it, and now you just have to backfill the system a little bit so you can get that next group. You saw the impact that even for a big market team, if the Red Sox don't have, you know, Mookie Betts and Jackie Bradley and Xander Bogarts, if those three don't come up, the Red Sox are not in a good place right now. So you do need that. 
we'll just see if they are able to start getting that and backfilling it here in the next year, two years, three years, because eventually they are going to need that. Well, but the thing about it is, is though, is, is that, and this is part, part of it is tough, is, is that you can't, they used to be able to spend a lot of money in the later rounds of the draft because they were a team that was willing to do that. They would get a Mookie Betts, you know, a little later on because they were willing to spend. Can't do that now because now they're capped in the draft. Internationally, obviously, you're capped now, so you can't go out and spend uh, $62.5 million for Yuan Mankata like they did. So there are limitations on what they can do. That being said, this is a team that is going to, you know, the draft every year will provide additional fodder to trade if need be. Now, again, that doesn't mean that it won't develop some of them, but at the same time, you keep getting guys to restock to trade, it is something where it is a never-ending treadmill as far as that because the draft rolls around every June and international signees happen every June, you know, so, I mean, July, sorry. But so it is something where they're going to continue to have some pieces to trade, but I don't expect them to be a top farm system anytime in the near future. I don't think that that's their current approach. And, you know, as long as they're winning division titles, I think it'll be all right. But now at the same time, if you're a Red Sox fan, I understand looking a little envious at the Yankees right now because, look, the Yankees had more playoff success, you know, last year. And they've done it with a core of homegrown. Not that the Red Sox don't have a homegrown core, but it's a better farm system too. And so if you're a Red Sox fan... Because everything in Red Sox-Yankees world is comparing to the other. That is a reason I understand why there is some trepidation because the Yankees have a juggernaut of a farm system right now. No question. That'll do it for this uh, Baseball America Prospects podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. For J.J. Cooper, I'm Kyle Glazer. Have a good one. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.